Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. It is always an honor to be with all of you. Thank you for joining me. And uh, always uh, an honor to share with you uh, what are the issues that are near and dear to my heart and have a short discussion, if you will, uh, review of the latest issues that I think are at the head of the spear when it comes to the defense of liberty, the defense of free speech, and the defeat of collectivist mindsets, be it political Islam, which I'm trying to play a key role in reforming against and defeating, but also socialism, uh, Marxism, and all of the other collectivist ideologies that run against freedom of thought, individuality, and minority rights. Now, this week I'm going to touch on three areas. One is just an amazing piece uh, I want to discuss uh, by Walter Russell Mead that uh, is uh, cleverly entitled the Abraham bomb, the Abraham bomb, and about Abrahamism and its impact on Western society, its revolutionary idea, and how it has stood against just sort of this uh, inhuman type of approach to society and the role it's played. And I think in this uh, long piece that he wrote, I think our solutions is a solution to sort of how to counter a very American way of how to counter collectivist ideas, be it the secular humanists or the Islamist theocrats. Also, I want to touch base on all of the continued diarrhea of thought that's happening after the Supreme Court ruling against affirmative action. And basically now you have the left seeming to pride itself on rejecting opinions of the Supreme Court, rejecting constitutionalism as somehow populism, and even suggesting that the Constitution is outdated. A lot a lot to, to mince over there, but I think from my perspective it'll be good, uh, healthy to, to review sort of where the planets align in the fight against theocracy, political Islam there. And then... Also, I think it's important to look at the jihadist threat. It still exists. It's underreported. And the investigative report on terrorism had a good piece on that, and we'll talk about that. So uh, I think that's a good part to uh, open up on is, you know, does the jihadist threat continue? Does it exist? And Abigail Esman at the investigative report on uh, terrorism had a good review to remind us that, oh, yes, it exists just because it's not on the front pages, on the uh, home pages of various websites of far-left media that are the quote-unquote establishment media. It doesn't mean that it hasn't existed and hasn't increased since President Trump left office. And as she says, you might think either of these to be the case, that it's either been run of the mill or it's just disappeared the reality is that the U.S. media seems to make of them very little. Arrests of terror cells, the disruptions of plans of attacks, 
shootings and stabbings, particularly in Europe, all go little reported and are frequently entirely ignored by the U.S. press. But that doesn't mean that they aren't happening, as she notes, or that the threat is anywhere near over. And she quotes Christine Abizade, director of the National Counterterrorism Center in Washington, told the Washington Institute in January that despite significant progress in diminishing the terrorist threat to the United States, the country continues to face a diversified, transnational, and in many ways unpredictable threat to the environment both at home and abroad. And a, decent du- and, a, and a recent Dutch intelligence overview of the jihadist threat in Europe and the West cautions that there are more and more signals that the jihadist groups are making preparations for attacks in Europe to come. The international threats have also grown. Uh, Holland and Sweden have um, specifically had reports that have shown increased threat. Dutch intel agency AIVD, largely in response to events in both countries, Holland and Sweden have involved the destruction of Korans by far-right activists, but the threat extends across the West. And we've even seen countries like Turkey and um, Qatar and others using these incidents of destructions of Quran to legitimize radicalization, to put pressure on the West to equalize, to morally justify and morally equate what's happening with these Quran burning episodes and other episodes with other acts done in their own countries which are incomparable because of the radicalism, because of theocracy, oppression, dictatorship that exists in these regimes. The first attack, and for those, just just to look at some of them, she notes that the jihadist attack of 2023, the first one in the New York Times Square on New Year's Eve when Muslim convert Trevor Bickford attacked three police officers with a machete, and that was the beginning. I, I don't remember that being covered. Do you? What happened to that news story? And they don't want to cover it because it really doesn't serve any of their political purposes. Biden weak on terror? Nope. Let's forget about that. Biden friend of the Islamists? Nope. The Islamists don't want to take responsibility for radicalization, so let's not cover that. Um, embracing Brotherhood legacy groups in America by the far left and the the squad and others in that red-green axis? Nope, let's not cover the impact that has on radicalization. She goes on to report that several terror attacks have killed and injured people across Europe, while several more have been disrupted by counterterrorism forces and police. German, American, British authorities have broken up terror finance rings Linked to ISIS, Hezbollah, as the AIVD reports, the online activities of jihadist individuals and groups are expanding worldwide. January 14, a Kosovar refugee stabbed random passerbys on a street in Strasbourg, then warned the officers arrested him on the scene that you will burn in hell for what you've done in Palestine. When... Only weeks later, Turkish authorities arrested 20 members of the Islamic State of Khorasan province, the Afghan arm of ISIS, disrupting their plans to attack synagogues, churches, as well as American and several European diplomatic posts in Istanbul. 
And in April, five men with ISIS ties were also taken into custody in Sweden, charged with plans to conduct an attack there. Likely thought to be retribution for that Quran burning in January. And then she goes on to describe arrests in Antwerp, Brussels in March, 15 men. Seven suspects later in a Chechnyan roots were fervent followers of ISIS, reported the Belgian newspaper Standard. And then descriptions of further financing. The you know anyone who understands this and uh, uh, take a look at uh, uh, Abigail Esman's article. She has a wonderful review to remind us. Um, anyone who knows anything about political Islam and the conveyor belt towards militarization and and antipathy and hate, separatism from the West, anti-Semitism and its hate for Israel, knows that the, the, the environment with what's been happening on the streets, as we discussed last episode, with what's happening in Paris and France, from just one incident with a police and an Arab immigrant, Muslim immigrant, tells you that this is only brewing if underneath the surface, if not on top of the surface, that the solution, which includes pure and simple, straightforward, open counter-Islamism, counter-Islamic state ideology, not just ISIS, but any Islamic state where the Quran is the constitution, where their legal system is Sharia, until there is a concerted national foreign policy to counter that, and as I've talked to you before, it's like when we had the Committee on the Present Danger in the 60s and 70s in the Cold War. The, the, the Committee on the Present Danger articulated that the threat, yes, included the Soviets and communism, but the, the, the Soviets, rather, as, as a, not only a state, but as a global entity that wanted to destroy the West, but more so it included communism, it included the, the ideology that undergirded Soviet desire for domination, which is the spread of Marxism and communism. And now the ideology of political Islam has only thrived since 9-11. It hasn't been defeated. Now, yeah, there's been skirmishes in which they had setbacks, significant setbacks, because when they get to power, when they ascend to power, they fail. They fail because the people realize that they are dyed-in-the-wool theocrats, no matter how they tried to to change it, and the Tunisian Islamists tried to become Muslim Democrats and other things, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, they were theocrats, and they've lost repeatedly, but then a, a, another coup happens, or, or, or somehow they're out of power, and they play the victim game, they play the um, utopian dream game where they say, oh, if we get power, it'll be amazing. Rule when in fact it's deception. It's a lie. Because they don't believe in classical liberalism. They don't believe in freedom. They don't believe in liberty. And this is the battle of the 21st century. Yes, Russia and China are part of that triple threat that includes Islamism and then Russia and China. But we need to be awake. We need to have strategy from the bully pulpits of not only the White House, but of every member of Congress 
that understands what we're up against and can't become complacent. Yes, we have in many ways more significant problems at home regarding the border, regarding um, the influx of millions of undocumented illegals and others, the uh, suppression of free speech, the dissolution of family values in the name of transgenderism and other dissolution of parental rights. Yes, we have many a battle economically. The American family is struggling because our authorities refused. No, not our elected officials. Our uh, uh, the Democrat Party, who when they get into party, we get into power, become authorities. They refuse. They refuse to allow free markets to thrive, and instead wanted to simply print cash and create inflationary economy that now has uh, spiraled us into continued reduction of the value of the money we make and thus continued reduction in our income and reduction in the creativity and the growth of the society. Which brings me to another note, which is what is the fallout continuing after the Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action? Because it is so telling. I've always asked. I never, I, it took me a while, maybe because I was being thick, but it took me a while to understand how it is that the left, which claims to be about feminism and gay rights and free speech, saw such kinship with Islamist theocrats, Islamo-fascist theocrats that that um, commit acts of violence and, and disgusting bigotry against the gay community, that, that uh, uh, defy, do not give women the right to their own bodily autonomy, wanting to control their dress, their hair cover, their... their uh, ability to work and drive and, and, and participate in society and, and make them into third and fourth class citizens instead of equal citizens with their male counterparts. And, and I never understood what the left, why they, it was simply utilitarian, that the end justifies the means. But I think now after the affirmative action ruling, it's becoming clear they are making statements that they simply reject the Supreme Court, that they simply believe the U.S. Constitution is archaic and needs to be revised. So, uh, I'm sorry, but that sounds like Khomeini. That sounds like the Islamists who say that the American system of governance is not good for all times and that ultimately it is an inferior secular godless form of government that's what the islamists in iran and afghanistan with the taliban and in cairo with the muslim brotherhood say all the time so when the left jonathan turley wrote a great piece in the hill in which he said um there are two statements that are made 60 years apart that need to be understood. One was, I shall resist any illegal federal court order. And second was, when the court's interpretation of the Constitution is egregiously wrong, the president should refuse to follow it. And he goes on to say that those two statements were made roughly 60 years apart. The first is from a segregationist, Alabama Governor George Wallace, Democrat. The second was made by two liberal professors this month. In one of the most chilling developments in our history, the left has come to embrace the authoritarian language and logic of segregationists and calling for defiance and radical measures against the Supreme Court. 
In a recent open letter, Harvard University law professor Mark Tush, Tushnet and San Francisco State University political scientist Aaron Belkin called upon President Joe Biden to defy rulings of the Supreme Court that he considers, quote-unquote, mistaken in the name of, quote-unquote, popular constitutionalism. Thus, in light of the court's bar on the use of race in college admissions, they argue that Biden should just continue to follow his own constitutional interpretation. Yep, ignore the courts. They're just not, no, it's not a normal court, as Biden said. So basically, the, the whole mechanism of government is being destroyed by the, the Democrats, this cycle. They want to uh, Trumpify everything, dismiss it, uh, indict it, and destroy it. You see the, the Supreme Court now is being attacked regularly, not just about its decisions, but about its personal lives, about their personal lives, and about what they decide to do as if they're not normal citizens that will have uh, colleagues and, and friends that may have other areas of interest and as if they don't know where to declare a conflict of interest if they have that. But somehow now they're under attack by being called upon such by such legal scholars <laughs> as AOC who's saying that uh, the judge so-and-so should resign and judge so-and-so should uh, be impeached, etc., they're simply trying to erode public trust of the Supreme Court. Remember many times in which the Thurgood Marshals of the world of history had many opinions that conservatives did not appreciate, did not agree with constitutionally, with many conservative scholars demonstrating significant disagreement. And yet, I don't recall attempts to delegitimize the Supreme Court or say that somehow they should be ignored. And what would happen? And how does, and this is my primary question on this issue, how does the attempt to tell our president and the president to say that it's not normal court, that this is going to be ignored and they're going to continue to do it elsewhere and maybe use other mechanisms to help certain races by using zip codes, etc., which seems segregationist to me, but how does that differ from Islamists that reject the American social contract, that reject the separation of church and state, the establishment clause in, in this country and the beauty of our history and how we can be under God and share values and argue values and morals and yet believe in a system with the separation of powers that ultimately ends and we move forward when the Supreme Court makes the decision. Imagine if we didn't have a society that respected the Supreme Court after Gore v. Bush and the courts at that time ruled on the hanging chads and whether that election in Florida was to be with the way it turned out or not. So, and yet, as Jonathan Turley points out, they're even disconnected from the majority of American opinions. He notes that the use of affirmative action cases is ironic since polls have consistently shown that the majority of the public does not support the use of race 
in college admissions. Indeed, even in the most liberal states, such as California, voters have repeatedly rejected affirmative action in college admissions. Polls further show that a majority support the Supreme Court's recent decisions. But yet, academics are pushing to impose their own values, regardless of the views of the public of the courts. If that's not elitism, I don't know what is. And as Vivek Ramaswamy said earlier this week, he said he doesn't see any systemic racism. What he sees is systemic classism. And this is classism where a class feels entitled to to push their ideas of the way things should be, to lift up a certain race or whatever it might be based on superficial identity politics instead of dealing with the realities of equal protection under the law. And, And as Jonathan then clearly points out, Even if these measures were popular, it would not make them right. It is precisely what segregationists such as Senator James Eastland, Democrat from Mississippi, argued that, quote, all the people of the South are in favor of segregation. And Supreme Court and no Supreme Court, we are going to maintain segregated schools. So, yeah, that's when we had a civil rights movement that went to the streets and began to push against popular opinion, which was pro-segregationist in those areas. And it wasn't just the Supreme Court, ultimately. It was a movement in the people that swayed them to do what was right and what they should have been doing all along before the civil rights movement. Now, Does that mean we're headed towards civil war? No. No. We're one of the most diverse countries on the planet, and we have a way of debating these things in a way that can ultimately, yes, push certain buttons and things might get inflamed, but at the end of the day, we can get through this in a way that heads heads us towards the areas of shared values rather than focusing on those that are different. Because it truly reminds us that even after the majority declared it unconstitutional, Biden wanted to release the national moratorium. He wanted to reissue it. White House counsel and most scholars told him the move would be blatantly unconstitutional and defy the express ruling of the court. And yet he consulted the only law professor willing to tell him what he wanted and did it anyway. And it was quickly again declared unconstitutional. Georgetown University law professor Rose Brooks was celebrated for her appearance on MSNBC after declaring that Americans are slaves to the U.S. Constitution and that the Constitution itself is now the problem for the country. Gosh, it sounds like Islamism, doesn't it? And yet these people say it proudly. The Islamists are dissimulators and will pretend to be, you know, sort of non-anarchical constitutional uh, adherents, but yet if they're majority, they clearly want to change it. MSNBC commentator Ellie Mistel called the Constitution trash and argued that we should imply simply just dump it. What is wrong with these people? AOC Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez questioned the need for a Supreme Court. 
New York Times said the Constitution is broken and should not be reclaimed. On and on. Fodder for Islamism. Fodder for those who hate America is what all of this is. And the reality is, is, you know, I come to you frequently with the issue of where the Islamic State concept is and how we defeat it. And that Americanism, whatever that is, as I described it to you so many times, deep in my heart is the only solution to that because it celebrates a social contract of equal protection under the law of a separation of powers of a belief of inalienable rights that we all equally have under God but not in a way that has to demand that some theologian interpret that for us but simply every human being every sentient human being can interpret that in a way that's equal and protected. This is how we defeat Islamism. And yet the left, the left is now using the same insidious ideas to, and sometimes pretty frontal, as we saw on MSNBC recently, that pretty frontally they are attacking our core values. Our core values of what it means to be an American. Last this week, I want to talk to you about sort of the Abrahamic tradition, which I I so enjoyed reading this piece by Walter Russell Mead. Mead is a extremely well-known and well-respected thinker at the Hudson Institute and uh, um, has multiple other designations, a, a Global View columnist at the Wall Street Journal, and co-hosts the weekly Tablet News podcast. And his piece, I think it's uh, somewhere upwards of seven, 8,000 words at the tablet, is called The Abraham Bomb. And the subtitle is Why We're Fighting Our Political Battles Like Religious Wars. And many of us have been talking about sort of the feeling that the secularists, the transgenderists, and the, the wokists, uh, if you will, have been creating sort of this cult, this uh, cultural shift process in which they, through some godlessness, a a hyper-secularism, have been creating a new faith, whether it's a faith that has anything to do with other religions in which it rejects God and those religions, or if it's simply its own entity, which is some type of collectivist, mind-numbing, embrace of political correctness in a way that stifles free speech, in a way that prevents critical thinking, in a way that uh, exaggerates the importance of ethnic and racial diversity. Because, yes, it's important that we be colorblind, but to be colorblind is to be colorblind. It's not to be color preferential at the time so that the distribution mirrors the random distribution of those races, but rather that the distribution be coincidental, that we are Americans that happen to be Arabic, happen to be African, that happen to be Indian, that happen to be Indonesian, that happen to be Spanish or Mexican. We are Americans that happen to be Jewish, Christian, Muslim, not 
those faiths demanding to be American or like the Black Lives Matter movement that says they're against family values and that they basically declare that everybody in this country that is not African-American must be a racist because they came out of racist roots, racist histories. And while Mead makes a number, a number of, uh, of wonderful historical points that I think accentuates the time in which we're in now, he does note that there has been something consequential happening in the 21st century. And it's not just that mainline Protestantism, evangelical Protestantism, and American Catholicism are simultaneously undergoing crises. It is not just that feminism and LGBTQ plus movements and their dizzying proliferation challenge historic Christian beliefs. It is not only that the hedonistic consumer-oriented focus of blue model society places the satisfaction of individual desire at the moral center of American life. Our singularity haunted century is a time of exhilarating dreams as well as horrifying nightmares as possibilities ranging from nuclear annihilation and catastrophic climate change to the abolition of inequality and the indefinite extension of human lifespan appear to depend increasingly on the outcome of mere political battles. And he goes on to say that it is no wonder that Americans from every camp and some with a foot in more than one are struggling to come to terms with the kind of eruption of fanaticism and extremism into our political life that would normally associate with religious upheavals. On one side, there are people who insist that to say men can't give birth is to commit an unspeakable hate crime. On another, there are those who are ready to organize for a civil war against the forces of wokeness. Growing numbers of liberal Democrats fear that Republican victory in the next election will bring American democracy to an end, even as unchecked climate change threatens to make the planet uninhabitable. Many Republicans fear that a prolongation of democratic rule will mean that trans activists unchecked illegal immigration, the collapse of law enforcement, and the relentless just lust for power by the deep state will crush what is left of American freedom. A lot of truth there. And I think he makes a great point about the divisions and, and what is pushing us. And he goes on in his article to talk about how central to our history is the Abrahamists. And this is not to denigrate, as he says, other faith traditions of Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, other, other faiths that have a, a central core covenant of morality. But the role that Abrahamism play, has played in the history of, of the free world cannot be overstated. He says, no cultural development since the advent of writing rivals the importance of or impact of the Abrahamic tradition. No cultural development since the advent of writing ravels the importance of it and the impact of the Abrahamic tradition. And for those who are secularists out there, he notes that it may be helpful for more secular readers to think of religion not as someone's adherence to a specific creed or cult, but as a universal characteristic of human consciousness from which our beliefs about good and evil, justice and injustice emerge. 
We are not often aware of the deep roots of our sense of identity and connectedness to the world, but our intuitions, ideas, and emotions about a relationship to existence and constantly shaping our perceptions, perceptions of and judgments about our own conduct, that of other people, our political loyalties and opinions, the legitimacy of social and political institutions, and our duties and our rights. As a result, our senses of justice and legitimacy are deeply connected to our religious sense. And religion is both an intimate, highly personal phenomena and a massively powerful social and political force. So religion, as he notes in this broad sense, is something that virtually everyone shares. But American culture and politics have been shaped by a more specific form of religious sense grounded in the traditions that reflect the legacy of the Abrahamic religion. No cultural development since the advent of writing rivals the importance of impact of Abrahamic tradition, as we said before. The political, scientific, moral, and philosophical consequences of the emergence of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and their close cousins, liberalism and Marxism, uh, I'm sure that'll rile up a few people, are almost incomprehensibly large. By the beginning of the 21st century, more than half of the living human race, 2.2 billion Christians, 1.6 billion Muslims, and 14 million Jews belong to one of the Abrahamic religions. The numbers continue to grow. And then he goes on, I think, to, to reflect on the importance of faith in peaceful societies in growing societies, in intellectual societies. And I can tell you, as a Muslim, while I think that he has a very, obviously his positive view of Islam is something that I find um, refreshing, the, real, the realism is that today in the 21st century, Islamic majority countries are in a dark ages. They have, have very little products that they're producing. They don't have free markets. The intellectual vigor that uh, used to exist in the Islamic world has not existed in hundreds and hundreds of years uh, and, and became ossified beginning in the 13th, 14th century. Mead notes, Our minds may not be able to plumb the full depths of divine transcendence, but the correspondence between creature and creator, a correspondence that includes the faculty of reason, means that as far as our minds can reach, that they can discern the truth. Reconciling the scriptures of the great Abrahamic religions with the conclusions of Greek philosophers was the business of Jewish, Islamic, and Christian thinkers well past the classical period. The works of Maimonides, Averroes, and Aquinas, each representing the culmination of centuries of reflection, still stand as massive monuments in the history of human thought and continue to shape and inspire philosophers and political thinkers to this day. And I want to end on this note. He said, Abrahamic thought and religion are as foundational and constitutive in the worlds of politics and history as they are for science and philosophy. Abrahamic religion holds that every human being matters, is a direct object of concern and care by the creator of the universe, and is an immortal soul whose fate has eternal significance and that the history of the human race is a moral and ethical story with a purpose and a meaning. Those are generally world-shaking convictions and people who have never read a word of the Abrahamic scriptures, scriptures or darkened the doorways of an Abrahamic house of worship live in a world 
shaped by Abrahamic values and ideas. This is so true, and I think as we look to try to define what Americanism is, because I believe Islamism is, is a rot on a quarter of the world's population that will ultimately be defeated. Now, how many civil wars, how many global wars will be involved in the defeat? We'll see what it takes to defeat Salafi jihadism and, and Salafism and Islamism and all these other Islamic theocratic Sharia states. But at the end, the counter to that still needs to be something rooted in faith because these 1.6 billion Muslims are not going to change their faith. The strategy can't be to convert them, but rather for them to embrace our common roots, our common moral constructs, our common faith in humanity, faith in God. And I think Mead reaches into that. I only read from, read to you a, a few small short excerpts, but it is a excellent read at the tablet, tabletmag.com, on the Abrahamic bomb. So on that note, thank you for listening again this week. We had a lot to talk about as always, and it is an honor to be with all of you. Hope you're having a wonderful summer with your families and enjoying the time together if you're able to get away from work. And as always, your faithful, humble correspondent for Liberty. This is Zudi Jasser at Reform This. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I. J-A-S-S-E-R and also at Reform This Radio. God bless. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.